Mac Power Users, episode 415, Workflows with John Syracuse. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. Hey, Katie Floyd. Hey, David. How are you? Good. And I'm so happy to have John Syracuse back on the show. John, welcome back after three years. Thanks for having me back. It, it seems like I was here only yesterday. I know. Time does fly, doesn't it? That was episode 287. Uh, a, a spoiler alert, I, I expect you're still using BB Edit. We'll get to that. Don't tell me now. <laughs> but uh, but I know some things have changed, and you've uh, changed up your hardware, and I thought it was just time to kind of have you back and hear what you're doing with your Apple tech. For uh, those folks that don't know John, he's the co-host of the Accidental Tech Podcast, which is one of the premier Apple uh, tech podcasts. He does reconcilable differences with our pal Merlin Mann, also on Relay, and uh, just a genuine Apple rascal. I, I was going to say curmudgeon, but Apple uh, rascal, I guess, works as well. No, rascal implies a sort of uh, a youthful vigor that I now lack. Curmudgeon makes me sound <laughs> angrier than I actually am, so it's somewhere in the middle. My favorite story that you ever told me, John, was we were at WWC. I don't know if I can share this or not. We'll cut it out if you tell me I have to. But um, after Apple announced, I believe it was the new file system, that you were on the floor and Craig Federighi walks up to you and says, well, are you happy now? And then you gave him just a list of problems with macOS. Well, it wasn't that big of a list, but yeah, he said more or less uh, you know, all the things I'd been wanting for so many years. Uh, I forget what the full list was, but he didn't go all the way back to memory protection and preemptive multitasking because that was kind of before his time. But uh, yeah, it was the new file system. Um, what were the other big ones? Uh, the new programming language. Uh, there was a couple of things there. He's like, hey, you got all things you want. You have nothing to complain about. And then he forgot one. Uh, the Finder. Everyone forgets about the Finder. That was my big hobby horse for a long time, and so I shouldn't have done that. I should have been uh, more chill and just talked to him, but I couldn't help it because he he, that was, he he said that to me, so I can't let that stand. So I said, you know, the Finder, like it can use some some help. I think I told him about the specific example of how the Finder is not all that it could be, without even going into all of my typical spatial Finder blah blah blah. Um, I'm sure you guys have experienced this, like. You type command N or command shift N if you haven't remapped that key uh, to make a new folder and you begin typing the name that you would like that new folder to have because you're an old Mac user and you understand that the input uh, focus for the keyboard will be on the, the name of the folder after you create a new folder. But if you do that on your Mac, very often the first few characters that you type will not end up in the name of your folder because it takes the finder a while to catch up with your command. So rather than typing command N, my new folder you'll get command n u folder because it'll leave out the my space in the end <laughs> well the, fi the finder is old like us yeah but see that's the thing that used to work like years and years ago when computers had like one bazillionth the power that they have now so uh the, there's two lessons here in this uh, that yes i do ha still have things that i want to complain about uh and also that when you meet somebody important like credit Friedrichi, you should not open with or even respond to a prompt uh, as I did uh, with uh, complaints about something that they work on. I, I love that you did. I love that you. And by the way, I've got room in the outline for more complaints about Mac OS. So, so hold on to those. All right. Uh, but so, so since we last talked to you, though, you have got some new hardware. Um, uh, so tell us about what your uh, what your Mac is these days. And yeah, not my home Mac. My home Mac is still the same. But at work, uh, honestly, at work, I was in the same, I'm not going to say rut, but in the same groove, let's say, because groove is much nicer than rut, right? 
as I was at home. Uh, when I took my current job many years ago, I asked them to get me a Mac because I had always had Macs at work, and it was a bit of a tough sell. Um, I would recommend for people who, I guess people aren't really in this situation anymore, but uh, long ago, uh, when the Mac was not as popular, the idea that you would go to like a real job and they would give you a Mac was almost unheard of, unless you were in like desktop publishing, uh, which is a phrase people might not remember, but or or maybe a creative field. But if you were just in a regular job, uh, but especially a programming job, like you weren't going to get a Mac That's because, you know, they just didn't use them. And very often if you said, fine, give me, you know, whatever PC you're going to give me, but I'll bring my Mac from home. There was a whole thing where corporate IT wouldn't let you bring your Mac from home because they didn't want the Macs on the network as if something terrible would happen because the deadly Mac is brought onto your corporate network. Within the last five years, I went into a courtroom and the other lawyer said, you know, are you going to get a real computer or, or use that toy through the whole trial? Five, within five years? That must have been an old lawyer. Yeah. But I mean, in my, in my industry, they're a little slow. Yeah, they still use the uh, the parentheses to make vertical lines. I know it's ridiculous. And, and they still like word perfect. So there you go. Uh, well, yeah, you, I guess it's it's a race between law and medicine to see who could be the most backwards technologically. <laughs> law will win every time. Well, medicine does send faxes. Law, law does too, brother. <laughs> all, right, all right. Anyway, I interrupted. So, so, uh, so uh, you have been using a Mac at work for a while. For a while, though, right? Yeah, well, so every job I had, even you know, from my first real job after college in, until now, I have had a Mac. But it, it used to be a very big struggle to convince whatever company I would want to work for, and it was sort of not like a condition of my employment. But I generally wouldn't even apply to a place where it seemed like I couldn't get a Mac, or it'd be one of the first questions I had to ask. It's kind of luxury I had to be in a high demand field out of college, being a, a programmer. So my current job. They didn't have any Macs, and I said, okay, well, you know, they gave me an offer, and I said, I'd love to accept your offer, but I really want to use a Mac. And there was no Macs at the company. So eventually, this request traveled all the way up the chain to a very high bigwig in the, the engineer organization, and said, sure, fine, get him his Mac. So I had the very first Mac in my company. Everybody else had, like, Dell laptops um, or Dell desktops. Like, that, that's, Dell had got, gotten to the company. Or I think there might have been some ThinkPads mixed in there. Um and times have really changed. Right now at my company, every new hire gets a choice. Do you want a Mac or do you want a PC? And a huge amount of people in the, you know, the engineer organization pick Macs. So Macs are everywhere in our company. But here I am. I had, at this point, I had worked there for eight years. And I was still using that original Mac that I had them buy for me when I was hired eight years ago. That was a 2009 Mac Pro. The cheese grater Mac Pro. Yep, uh, with an Apple screen, and that's what I'd been using. And by, by the time I, you know, at the end of that computer's life, like the corporate policy for like how often do we replace your, how often will we replace your computer with a new one? If you ask, I think it was something obscene, like eighteen or twenty-four months. Like that, if you wanted a new computer within that time period, you could get one if you wanted. But I had been using it for eight years. Yeah, they made money on you. Yeah, I mean, that was the whole big thing. They're like, oh, we, we pay $300 to get a, a crappy Dell laptop for people, and you're saying you want this computer that costs how much money? I think it was like $1,600 or something, plus like $600 for the monitor, you know, because it was an Apple monitor. Uh, you know, and I, I was like, what, you know, I used, I used what little leverage I had having not yet accepted their offer to make that happen, but it turned out to be a bargain. It amortized over eight years. It's a good deal. But I finally had to give up on it because you know i was getting old um and I, I lived in fear every day that the thing would break down and 
nobody else had desktops and everybody had laptops and meetings and stuff like that. And, you know, it's like corporate policy was everyone has to have laptops and I'd go to meetings without anything except for like a pad of paper or something. It just felt not great or my phone to type things in on. So I said, it's time for me to get a new computer, but I was holding out for the new laptops before they were released, before the touch bars were released. Right. I was like, oh, I'm just going to wait for the next round. Yeah. You and the rest of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And when the, when the touch, well, no, before the touch bars came out, it was like, it was the old, the old, uh, you know, the unibodies exactly pre before the touch bar. And I knew new laptops were eminent. I'm like, well, I'm just going to wait for the new laptops to come out. So the new laptops came out with the touch bar. I'm like, all right, I'm going to get one of these. And I told corporate IT, okay, I'm ready to give up my eight year old computer. Uh, get me one of those new, uh, Macs with a touch bar. And they said, we've decided as a company, we're not buying those because they're bad or something like they, they had a bunch of reasons of like, they're not they're The battery life is worse and they're not better enough for the money and yada, yada, yada. So I had to wait another several months before my company decided, okay, we'll buy the second generation, you know, you know, like the, the 2016 to the 2017 models or whatever, like the second generation of touch bars is the first one my company started to purchase. So that's what I have at work. I have a 15 inch 2017 MacBook pro with touch bar. So, so what's the experience going from an eight-year-old Mac Pro to a brand new MacBook Pro? Do you see a big difference? Uh, my Mac Pro is way better. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, I I expected to see a bigger speed difference than I do see. My Mac Pro had been upgraded with an SSD, right? So it had it had a pretty snappy SSD in it. Mostly, what I'm doing with it all day is text editing and web browsing. So they had the same amount of RAM because you can only get 16 in the, uh, the MacBook Pro. And I had built up my Mac Pro to 16 over the years by buying additional RAM and shoving it in myself. <laughs> I could see that because that was easy with the change grader. Yeah, yeah, no, the door comes right off the side. Um, so the difference in performance that I saw was not particularly significant for the stuff that I do, except for, you know, uh, in the other direction where the MacBook Pro was slower, and I'll get to that in a second. I'm using the same monitor, and the reason I'm using the same monitor is because I intentionally did this. I kept my 24-inch Apple LED cinema display, very old, a lot of it's an LCD screen with an LED backlight, uh, which is non-retina, and it's 1920 by 1200. And I intentionally got the 15-inch MacBook Pro because I knew it could do a scaled resolution of 1920 by 1200 in retina. So it's really like whatever double that is. I can't do the math in my head. Um, so, and I use display mirroring. So when I plug in my external display and my mouse and my keyboard and all that other stuff to my new MacBook pro, none of my windows move around because the big monitor and the built-in one are exactly the same resolution and they mirror each other. So plugging and unplugging all day, none of the screen does not change size and therefore my windows aren't shifted around, which is very important to me. Now you, you figured that out in advance. Yes, that was my plan uh, for me because I don't want to touch a laptop at all. I use an Apple aluminum extended keyboard. I use an old Logitech mouse. I look at my monitor, like the laptop is just off to the side. I don't want to actually touch it if I can help it. Obviously, when I take it with meetings to meetings, with you, I have to. But the, the places where it's slower is like in every aspect of the computer that doesn't have to do with computing. Like when I sit down on my desk and plug it back in, there's a certain order of operations and a lot of waiting around before the thing is ready to go. Oh, and I also have to go to the network uh, system preferences and click the connect thing on our like 802.11x authentication thingy, which doesn't automatically authenticate for some reason. And every time I unplug, I have to go through a certain order of operations. Otherwise, if I don't, 
and I unplug just, you know, however I want to. When I get to the meeting and open the lid, the screen will be entirely black and I won't be able to get it to turn back on. Now, would that be true with any laptop or is that just like, is that a thing because a dedicated machine is always plugged into the network or is it, is that a, a, a MacBook Pro thing that's slowing you down? I, I honestly don't know. I think it might have something to do with like, uh, my insistence on using ethernet which is possible it's what i do when i plug it in i plug it into like this owc dock thing that has ethernet and usb and a bunch of other stuff on it which i think is great and it gives me all the the connectivity i need right through one port like i'm living the dream uh but that's where my ethernet is plugged in and for whatever reason my networking thing doesn't authenticate until i manually click the connect button and if you don't do that like it's connected over wi-fi and it thinks it's connected over usb and it prefers the USB because I've, I've sorted that to the top in the network uh, list thing, but it will just not load anything until you click that connect button, um, it, you know. But that and, like, all the sort of, like, freezes and stutters, like, when I unplug my laptop and it's free and clear of all its stuff, it's just free-floating, it's on the Wi-Fi, it's fine, it takes so long for it to be functional again after I unplug it because it's got to, like, somehow realize, whoa, that Ethernet connection that used to be there is gone. I used to be connected to a USB keyboard and mouse. Those are gone. And that, you know, the the USB audio input with the headphone jack, that's also gone. And now I'm on Wi-Fi, and here's a beach ball. And don't click on anything for a while, and let me dim the screen. And then it And this stuff never happened with, with my, you know, with my desktop computers. I'd sit, come back to my desk, smack the space bar, type in my password because this auto-lock and everything. And it's ready to go instantly. It's always ready to go instantly. I never let it go to sleep for eight years. I never let that computer go to sleep. I never shut it down. It just ran continuously for eight years. And it was always instantly ready to do what I asked to. It never put beach balls on my face. It never asked me to wait for it to do God knows what. So I am not a big fan of laptops in general. And I'm not a fan of this laptop. Yeah, I think a lot of what you're... I've experienced a lot of the same things. But I will tell you that they probably got worse with the, the... I have a 2016, you've got a 2017, but same thing. Um, I, I tell you, they're probably worse with the with the 2016 MacBook Pro that I have. But I think a lot of what your experience in general is just the, the life of using a laptop in docked mode, you know, having to plug in all these extra peripherals and it not quite knowing, you know, what's what. I, I've experienced a lot of these issues because for, I, I would say since the Titanium PowerBook, since 2001, I have always I've used a laptop as my primary machine in some kind of docked when I'm home type configuration. And and those have just been chronic things that I think have gotten worse. And I'm not sure whether it's worse because of hardware or or worse because of software, but it but it definitely has gotten worse. And I've had laptops before, like not me personally, but my wife had preferred laptops for many years. So we had a, like a non unibody uh macbook pro and we had a powerbook g4 before that and we had a macbook air and the macbook air was actually docked to a thunderbolt display remember when that was the cool docking technology like you had the apple thunderbolt display that came with this sort of rat tail that came out or cat of nine tails that came out and you had the power that was better i i had that and i think that was better because it was probably apple to apple yeah it was a little bit better i had problems with that monitor i had to bring it back to the apple store three times to get it to work uh, but the key is that we just generally didn't two things we didn't unplug it a lot. Like the laptop spent most of its time just docked there, which is one of the reasons why she has an iMac now. But she's like, look, I hardly ever use this laptop as a laptop. Next computer, just get me an iMac. So that's what she has now. And she's very happy with it. Um, but also, we didn't actually put it in clamshell mode. Like we left the MacBook Air open, right? And we didn't use that screen. It was kind of like tucked away. like, in, And it wasn't in mirroring mode. So we had a 27-inch Thunderbolt display and the MacBook Air. And it was just always connected to it. And so that 
mostly seemed to work out, but it it still had more finicky problems, like with the networking and and like occasionally would lose track of the camera that's in the monitor or whatever, than with the iMac or that than with the Mac Pro. So I am a big desktop computer dinosaur. Um, I I you know I can enjoy the benefits of laptops, like I use them. Obviously, I take my laptop with me to meetings and stuff, and I've used the MacBook Air around the house, so I understand the appeal of portability. And of course, I've yeah, taking laptops to WWDC, but uh, I, at WWDC, for example, I switched as soon as I could, could to using an iPad with a Bluetooth keyboard because it just seems so much more reliable, less finicky, and the battery life was astronomically better. Uh, but for home, I want a desktop. Yeah, I feel like you're not a dinosaur anymore. I think it's like, you know, when the old clothes come into fashion again because there's a lot of people, myself included, that, that really loves an iMac Plus an iPad combination or an iMac plus like we had uh, David underscore on and he likes his iMac plus a, uh, the, uh, the MacBook. And he thinks that's a great combination. Uh, and it's pretty nice. I mean, cause I don't have any of those problems. And I, I, I did a laptop connected, uh, an Apple laptop connected to a monitor several years ago. And it, it had this thing where in clamshell, it would light up the screen and get super hot and, uh, nobody could ever figure out why it would do that. I mean, it, there's always like some problems I feel like that come with it. Yeah. Which is weird. Cause if you think about it, like what in the end is the difference hardware wise between an iPad and a Mac, like they're, they're all processors and memory and storage connected to a screen. Right. And yet iPads seem to have none of these problems. iPads, you pick them up, you tap the screen, hit the home button, whatever, hit the power button, whatever you want to do, it's ready to go. Like it reads your fingerprint, it unlocks the thing. Like, we don't have these problems with iPads, right? So is it just an OS thing? Is it because there's such a, you know, complexity of peripherals that you could potentially attach to a laptop where there's almost nothing you connect to an iPad? Uh, I don't know. But either way, um, I mean, I guess if you're used to laptops, lots of people buy and, and like laptops, but it just seems like there's so many more things that can go wrong. And obviously, I don't I don't enjoy the benefit of the portability. Certainly at home, I don't enjoy the benefit of the portability. Like, I'm totally on iOS devices for that. And in the office, how much can you really enjoy going to meetings, right? Um but for people who do enjoy the portability of laptops, even in those camps, I feel like there's great affection for certain models. Like surely the like a 2011-ish generation, that whole generation of MacBook Air, people love those things. They were they were reliable workhorses. They were light. They they struck a nice balance between price and performance. There's similar love for uh, you know certain laptops all down the Apple line, and then there's other laptops that are less loved. And I think the current generation is in the less loved group at this point. Yeah, I believe that, that, like, I guess you'd call it the second generation MacBook Air. That's going to be, like, on the top 10 list for a long time. Um, but I, I know you're kind of particular about your stuff. I, I was curious, when you got the new MacBook Pro, did you also get a new keyboard and mouse, or did you just plug it into your old stuff and go? So I've already broken one Apple extended keyboard at work in those eight years by using it. Like, I broke one of the keys, and it just, just stopped functioning. I mean, my, my keyboard at work was pretty gross, like... I didn't eat that much of my desk, but I ate enough of my desk. I tried to clean everyone. So anyway, I broke one. I figure, you know, six or seven years in, it's valid. So I, bu- I bought a second Apple Lumen Extended, and that's the one I continue to use with, with my new stuff. My mouse, I have this ancient Logitech mouse. I believe the actual product name. It's not like Logitech MX whatever, like, you know, how they all have those model numbers. Mine was before they even did that. I think it's called Logitech USB Wheel Mouse because I think it was the only mouse they made that was both USB and had a wheel on it. I used that at work for many, many years, and around seven years in, uh, I think the mouse wheel broke. Some part of it broke or was getting finicky. Uh, And I'd tried for years to find another mouse that 
that I liked in any way. I have the same mouse at home, by the way, in a different color. Every time I, you know, I, I do this terrible thing you should never do, like go into like a, you know, if you're in like an office supply store getting something, you know, they have that whole row with a bunch of mice set up. I go over there and try all the mice, getting all the germs of all the other pe- people and kids who've come and touched those mice. Um, okay. uh, I can't find, uh, I even bought a couple of them and tried them and either return them or give them to my wife. I can't find a mouse that I can tolerate except for this one. So when my mouse at work broke, I went on to eBay and found that exact mouse model from 1990, whatever, and bought another one. You should buy two or three. It's going to be harder to find them in a couple of years. <laughs> I, I would have, I could have found them. It's not easy to find. Yeah. My one, I, I live in fear of my one at home dying. Uh, but so now I have a newish one at work and the one at home is not particularly new. Is it the feel that you like, or is it like the plugged in responsiveness? I know cause you're a gamer. Sometimes that's a big deal to people. Uh, uh I, I would think it'd be fine with a wireless one. No, what, what it's, it's basically the shape and also the lack of side buttons. Like I, I gripped the mouse on the sides because my mouse skills were, you know, developed on the, you know, the original Macintosh mouse from 1984. Remember that? But the absolutely straight sides. So I grip it, the mouse from the sides, and I want the sides to be flat. And most mice have sides that are curved in some way. Either they're scalloped in or they, they, they angle down or they angle up. And most mice also have some kind of side buttons that I do not want to accidentally hit, don't want to feel, don't want to ever use. And, you know, I've tried. I've tried to find... Here's the simplest mouse you can find. No side buttons. Very simple. I do want like a mouse wheel in the middle. And I do want two buttons, right? So, you know, and I want the middle, I want the mouse wheel to click for a middle button and I want the sides to be straight and I just can't find a mouse like that. So I just keep buying these because the sides are dead straight. It has two buttons. It has a wheel and, and the middle thing clicks. All right. So that's a call out to the Mac power users listeners. If any of you have access to these old mice, please contact John. He will, uh, yeah, he I, like I think they were cheap even when they were new. Logitech yeah. <laughs> USB wheel mouse was not an expensive mouse. It is not a fancy mouse at all. And it is wired. I mean, I would, I think I would prefer a wireless mouse at this point, just because, you know, I'm not doing much gaming on the Mac these days. I'm doing it mostly on consoles. So I don't care about latency. I just, you know, I'm always living fear of the, of the cord getting caught on something and, you know, ripping or something. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. You can learn more and save up to 20% by visiting onepassword.com slash MPU. So have you finally caught up from all of your post-holiday haze yet? I will tell you, if you're anything like me, one of the things I spend a lot of time doing this holiday season is helping my family with all their various tech support issues. And one of the things that I was very thankful for this holiday season was 1Password, because I learned a long time ago that as soon as I found out the passwords for my various family members' devices, I put all of that username and password information into 1Password. And sure enough, it came in handy because this holiday season, I had to help family members update their devices, save themselves from being locked out of their accounts, and a whole host of other things. I had all of this priceless information safe and secure in my digital wallet because 1Password wears the key to keeping my digital life safe and secure. 1Password will store all kinds of information. It will store information like credit cards, receipts, and more. It will save and automatically fill all of your password information across web pages with just a single click. And it will even help you with things like realizing when passwords for websites might be out of date or with their watchtower feature when a website might have been compromised and it's a good idea to probably go ahead and change your passwords. You can also do things like save secure notes, 
or even save information for your software registrations, all right within 1Password. It is your personal digital wallet for saving anything that you want to keep prying eyes away from. When you buy the 1Password subscription service, you get access to all of their award-winning apps, whether it's on Mac, Windows, iOS, or Android, as well as access to all of your information through the web, through your various devices, and seamless syncing to make sure that your information is up to date wherever you may need it. So you can learn more about keeping all of your information safe by heading over to onepassword.com slash MPU and save up to 20% on your purchase. So get your digital affairs in order and check out OnePassword. And thanks to the folks at OnePassword for their continued support of the show. So, David, before we uh, we get into our next topic, we uh, we had an announcement at the top of the show that that we forgot to mention, and that is that we're going to be both in Chicago again in March for the ABA Tech Show. Yes, we're going to be talking nerdy stuff to lawyers, and so Katie and I are in the same town, so we thought let's have a party, and uh, we're getting something set up. We think uh, the, the date will be March the 7th. It'll probably be at the exact same place we had last year. It was a blast last year. I think over a hundred people showed up and it was just so much fun. Uh, we're still in the process of getting sponsors. It's quite expensive to kind of, to feed and clothe everybody, but we're working on it. But at least for this week, we'd like you to just save the date if you're interested for March 7th. We think it's probably going to happen, but you know, please don't buy non-refundable plane tickets or anything like that yet, because we're we're not a hundred percent sure that it's a go. But uh, I, I would say we're more than fifty percent sure it's a go there, right? We're we're working on it. We're going to, and hopefully, we'll have better news next week. Yeah, we hope to have something to announce next week. Uh, watch watch Twitter, watch the show notes. If we confirm it between now and then, we'll we'll do another Eventbrite thing that we'll put in the show notes. But um, we'll hope to have something firm next week, right? Sounds like a plan. John, you know, I know that you were uh, slow to pick up an iPhone at the beginning, but now you're now you're carrying an iPhone. Well, he did. He did have the iPod Touch forever. Yeah, I was uh, I was on the iOS or iPhone OS, as it was called back then, bandwagon from the beginning, but did not go over to the iPhone, mostly because of the the cost of uh, phone plans. Like I had a cell phone, but it was like super cheap, like we'd buy minutes and I would just never use it because uh, the only places I ever were was were like in my house. Uh, or at work, and I had Wi-Fi in these two locations. You're sitting at your desk all day. Yeah, and, and my car, I had my dumb phone, so that was it. But eventually, I succumbed because eventually, you know, what can you do? Everyone has smartphones, now the whole family has them. So so which one did you get, and, and what do you think about carrying an iPhone every day? Uh, well, so I got, my first iPhone was the iPhone 6, uh, and, and I liked it fine. Uh, you know, it's, uh, as you might have predicted once, once you go to that like the ipod touches go out of your life they had stopped really updating the ipod touch anyway like it was no longer getting bigger and faster like it was just lagging so far behind the phone so it was nice to be on the cutting edge again i like the iphone 6 size once i got went to that size from the little ipod touches it was it was a big difference uh i'm i'm pretty firmly in that camp like even if the iphone se size was like the best phone they made i would still prefer the slightly larger screen of the six and i you know on a two-year replacement plan so I kept the six for two years and then I got the seven and I'm into my second year of the seven and I like the seven even better than the six. I love the really fast touch ID. The seven has been a great phone for me. Uh, haven't, haven't looked back, haven't regretted uh, getting a, a phone at all. Now, as somebody who wasn't really looking to bring an iPhone to their life for so long, do you find that you're using it for stuff you didn't expect? Um, yeah, my, my wife got an iPhone first. She wanted to get an iPhone. I think her first one was like 5S or something. And 
I knew I was going to get a phone when we would be out somewhere together, like waiting in a line or something. And I would ask to use her phone to like, look at Twitter for a second. Or like I had, I had like my email account open in one of the mail clients on her thing. Like, all right, so clearly, clearly I need to get a phone because before when no one had a smartphone, everything was fine. But like when one person in the group has a smartphone, the temptation to just like borrow that phone to quick check something, you know, so that, that, that has made a difference. Um, I don't think my habits are that different other than that sort of idle time stuff. Like if you're waiting in line somewhere or waiting for a kid to get out of something, uh, it's nice to be able to, you know, check your email or check Twitter. I could get text messages before, but now it's nice to be able to send them. Uh, and, you know, Bluetooth. I think Bluetooth in the car is probably the biggest life change. Because uh, I suppose I could have done that with the iPod Touch, but I, I didn't have a car that had Bluetooth then. So it just coincided that we got the, the phone. And now listening to podcasts in the car, like, you know, transitioning from uh, headphones or AirPods at this point, And then, you know, get into the car, take the AirPods out, and then it switches to the car stereo. That's nice. What what about the iPhone as a camera? Because like I know that you're really into kind of family photography, and you had a pretty good carry around camera. Did did the iPhone replace that in any way, or are you? Uh, how's that work for you? No, because uh, even before I got the phone, um, I had not, not fancy cameras, but like okay cameras, and I didn't really use any of the iPod Touches to take pictures because the cameras were crappy. When I got the iPhone six, and my wife got the iPhone five S, the cameras were kind of good enough to start taking more pictures with them. Um, I guess what the iPhone has replaced is I used to have, we used to have a point and shoot camera of some kind and then like a big camera, which really wasn't, again, not that fancy. It would just be like a Canon super zoom or whatever, but it was bulky. Right. And we don't buy point and shoots anymore. Right. So our iPhones have completely replaced the small portable point and shoot camera, but they've not replaced the big camera. If anything, the big cameras have gotten bigger. So I have a bigger, fancier, more expensive camera, and I continue to lust after even bigger, fancier, and even more expensive cameras that I stop myself from buying because they're super expensive. Um, so, But if you look at the total numbers of pictures taken during the year, when we go on family vacations, I take pictures with the big camera, and I take a lot of pictures. So that, you know, the two or three weeks that we're on vacation during the year, I take like literally thousands of pictures. And the whole rest of the year in dribs and drabs, you get pictures with the iPhones. So total pictures, I still think the big camera is winning. And most of the pictures I like best come from the big camera. But day-to-day random pictures, I use my phone. Now, what are you doing to manage all of these photos? Are you throwing them in iCloud or, or, excuse me, in Apple's iPhoto? Are you using something else? Uh, That has continued to be a struggle for so many of us. Yeah, you know, my sort of bugbear with with photos has always been that apple you know i'm in the apple ecosystem and i have i have a lot of stuff invested in the apple ecosystem so i want to use apple's photo solution but apple still doesn't quite acknowledge the way i think with the way my family uses cameras and i think a lot of families do like we multiple people in the family have cameras and particularly important ones my wife and i both have cameras and you know so we've got the big camera that we both take pictures with and we've both got our phones and as far as i'm concerned those are family photos like i don't really care whether i took the picture of something or my wife took the picture of it or which camera it's with i want that to go into one big bucket but apple doesn't make that particularly easy because you can't have sort of uh a a family photo library 
the photo library has to belong to somebody it has to belong and we don't want to share an apple id because that's another anti-pattern like my wife has her own apple d apple id i have my own apple id for sanity's sake you just have to do that uh, apple did add the family thing so we have added we've created our little you know icloud family or whatever where you have adults and kids and the kids have their own apple ids and when they try to get apps on their ipads or whatever ask us for approval that all works great but when it comes to photos you have to pick whose apple id uh, are you going to use for the quote-unquote family photo library because what we don't want to happen is i have my photo library and she has hers because first of all now your photos are in two places and second of all where do you put the big camera photos you have to pick one to put them or unless you want to duplicate them and have the same photos in two places and that's madness because they have different edits on them and everything so uh, I think I can't even remember if we've switched this but for a long time now my wife's Apple ID she owns the family photo library it's on her computer which means it's also on her phone which means if I go on my phone and look at my photo library I don't see basically the quote-unquote family photos I just see the photos that I took on my phone and that's it so to make the system work every time we take pictures with the good camera they go only into her photo library and her account when I take uh, pictures on my phone, they go into my photo library, and then I have to remember to periodically export unmodified originals from my photo library, starting at the date that I last did it. So I have to sort of keep track. When's the last time I imported photos into here? Export them all, copy them over the home network to her computer, import them into her photo library. So what we're trying to get is one big bucket of photos for everybody. The kids' photos so far are still in their own private libraries, but they're not taking any exciting pictures that we care about at this point but eventually if they you know get older and start taking pictures more than just like you know silly pictures for their friends and stuff we might want to have them in the family photo library too and we'll be doing that same thing so yeah we're using apple's icloud photo library and we're manually shoving everything to a single photo library and you're doing it really the only way that it can be done by exporting full resolution with metadata apple has the shared photo like the icloud photos thing but the photos get scrunched down in that process. So that's really not a, like, that. that's the way we do it in our family, but we actually degrade the quality of the photos in the process. And, and there are limits, like there are limits on number of photos. I think it's like 5,000 or something, or, you know, there's either a num- uh, number or size limits, or, you know, like that, that sharing thing is not a solution for that. Um, and now the, the, other asset, the other thing, like I said, is uh, on my wife's phone, she has an iPhone 10 because she always got the fancier phones than me. She can see our whole family photo library because, again, we use iCloud photo library and we upload them all. So she can see all the little thumbnails and scroll through them and find the picture she wants. I can't do that on my phone, even though like it's, it's not like uh, like in the iTunes store where you can sign in with a different Apple ID to the iTunes store. I can't sign into iCloud photo with her Apple ID on my phone. And we hear from listeners who do that. They like a husband and wife share an Apple ID just because of that photos problem which is nuts. I mean, it really is hard. Then you don't have a, you know, your own calendar and it, there's just a lot of problems with it. And, and I would argue that the fact that Apple has got so good about making family shared accounts and everything makes it all the more important that they solve this problem. But on the flip side, I'm not sure I want a library that has every picture my kids took and my wife took. I mean, my wife goes to, you know, out with her friends to a scrapbook store and she'll take 18 pictures of paper because she wants ideas from it. And, you know, you have to be careful what you wish for in some ways, because if you have just one big bucket with all the photos in it, it could be just a big mess. I'm not sure what the answer is. 
I would still prefer that, but obviously the solution is to have the ability to do full resolution, full metadata sharing, but then either have opt out or opt in. So you can either decide I'm going to tell you which photos I want to share, or I can say by default, share everything with the family, but then I can unshare like the 70 pictures of like paint cans I took at the store or something like that. And same thing for kids. Like that's, that's what you want to happen. And ideally, because this is all Apple stuff and it's all their front end and their back end, they can do it efficiently. So they're not actually copying the photos around. It's just a matter of like, shuffling metadata that's i think that's the system everybody wants and if you have that system with merely with just those simple options choose what the default is and have it either be opt-in or opt-out then it's up to you to decide what balance you want to do i think i honestly think most people would just say just share it all into one big bucket as long as i'm able to sort and filter it which you'd be able to do because you'd be able to you know hide the pictures taken by my kids show the pictures take like i do that by by phone model now i have like smart uh photo album things of saying things taken with john's iphones luckily i've always had different models than my wife's and so I, you, know, you can do filters like that but obviously apple would know, you know because it knows what apple id you're signed into like apple has all this information they could implement the system they're getting so close they did shared uh what do you call it family uh icloud storage sharing they added that recently which was great so i could stop getting like this you know 99 cent bill for all of my kids apple ids for their backups plus the bill for my wife's plus the bill for mine's now i just buy the really big backup for the whole family and we all share it so I feel like they're creeping up on it, but still not here yet. And, and no matter what they do, it's better than your system of exporting and manually copying photos. It's, you know, which is just, it's nuts. Yeah. And hoping you get it right because you are, you're the human going, when's the last time I did the imports? Did I already import this one? Am I skipping any? Like, it's so hard to know whether you, and, and, you know, then God forbid, if you're, if I like actually edited and sorted photos on my computer, I would lose all those edits because I'm exporting unmodified originals. It's the only sane way to do it without losing quality. So I generally don't touch my photos in my library because I know don't touch them there, only touch them after you've imported them and then you can mess with them. You know, on that point, you had said when you go on vacation, you take thousands of photos. Do you do anything to, you know, to thin that herd? Uh, right away? I mean, how do, do you keep thousands of photos for each vacation or do you go through and thin them out or what do you do? I keep more than I should, but what I do is, uh, you know, I import them all off the camera. Usually I have with me a laptop signed into my wife's Apple ID. So I import them all into my camera and I allow them to be, get pushed up to iCloud, which is kind of like my on the fly on vacation backup, right? So, you know, I leave the laptop plugged in while we're, you know, off at the beach and, and it's hopefully it's uploading all those photos. Uh, but when I import them and I go through them all in uh, an Apple's Photos application, I will delete, used to be a lower percentage, but, you know, maybe 10, 25% uh, of the photos right there. You know, I imported them all and I go through them and it's like, delete, okay, okay, delete. And it, it used to be that I would rate every photo with a star rating, but now the Apple has simplified that to a fave. So I will go through them all fave the ones I think are good, delete the ones I think are bad, and leave the rest as is. So that's a good 10 to 25% right off the top that just get deleted. Uh, and then after that, I will go through them again and go through my favorites and crop and edit them and make them all look nice or whatever. Usually, and when we're on family vacation with my extended families, at the end of the day, I will, or the end of every couple of days, I will show my cropped, edited, favorited pictures. So I, I'll take 2,000 pictures of the beach, literally 2,000 pictures, and show 60 at the end of the day. 
So that, that, that is the thinning process, but I will, I will keep everything except for the ones I delete on that first pass. I've got this theory that the percentage of photos you delete on the first pass raises in relation to your kid's age. Because my kids are in high school and college. We just had a big vacation and I was knocking out like 80% of the pictures the first pass. <laughs> just like, you know, two or three shots at this place that look really good. That's good enough, you know? I, I, my delete percentages increase mostly as my cameras have gotten better and my standards have gotten better. So if the focus is off by even a little bit, like, no, my standards are too high for that now. Whereas if I look back at years ago, I kept things that are incredibly blurry because I'm like, oh, but, you know, that could be a nice picture. So now I'm pretty ruthless about, you know, someone's out of the frame or it's slightly off focus or they're making a weird face. Uh, delete. And then all these photos, they're they're in the the iCloud photo library, obviously. But do you do any other paranoia backup of them? Because I know these are, you know, some of the most you know, important data that you have. I mean, obviously the the normal backup routine. But are these photos anywhere else? So they're, you know, setting aside vacation when I'm doing it at home. They're on my wife's iMac. My wife's iMac is a uh, backed up with time machine to two different places it's backed up with time machine to a drive that's connected to her computer like an external drive usb uh, external drive it's also backed up to my synology nas in the basement also through time machine so that's two time machine backups there is a super duper backup that i do periodically directly connected to her computer so that's a clone that also includes the photos and then i run crash plan on her computer which backs up those photos to crash plan and then finally I run Google Photos on her computer, on her account, signed into my Google uh, account. So it uploads her photo library to my Google Photos account. So on my phone, I can launch the Google Photos application and see our family photo library, plus or minus edits and metadata, which is kind of annoying, and all the albums and everything like that. So that's the final place that it's backed up, is I'm using Google Photos essentially as a backup of my iCloud photo library. Google Photos knows nothing about my iCloud photo library. It just knows that it has uploaded a bunch of pictures. So even if something catastrophic goes wrong and iCloud freaks out and I don't notice and it transfers it to all my backups and everything, I still have Google Photos. Let me, let me back up for a minute. You're, you're using Google photo library to back up the photo library that's on your wife's Mac because that's where the quote-unquote master set is stored, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, and her, her, her photos application is set up to like keep all originals. And so that's using the Google, the, Google's got a little assistant that will run on the Mac in the background and will upload all that stuff to Google Photos. Yep. And it doesn't, it doesn't understand, as far as I can tell, it doesn't understand the photos library other than knowing that it's a folder it can look into. So it's just looking for like big JPEGs or big, you know, uh, images. Now, are you paying, are you paying Google to, so you can do the full upload or is it just the. Yep. I, I'm paying for the full upload. Like, cause it's a backup. I pay for, I pay for, uh, think one or two terabytes of storage on both Google and Apple. And then crash plan is, uh, you know, unlimited storage for whatever their, their rate is. Well, I think you're safe. You never know. I mean, like if the house burns down, I've got, I've got Google photos, iCloud photo library and crash plans still. So even if the house burns down, I've got three, three backups, but boy, I wouldn't want to do that restore. Yeah. And then you mentioned you had a little different procedure for like when you're actually out on vacation before you, you make the dump to your wife's iMac. Yeah. Cause I go on vacation and I don't go with enough SD cards to just keep everything on the cards. I go with a couple of cards, but, uh, days where the shooting can almost fill one of the cards I have. So I will import it from the card to whatever laptop I bring with me. 
and then I allow that to back up to iCloud photo library over the network. So when I'm on vacation, I only have the one, I have them, whatever is on the SD card, which I'll have to periodically erase or rotate through. Then I have what's locally on the Mac, which should be all of them. And then I have what was uploaded to iCloud photo library. And I do the upload mostly just by leaving my laptop at home and plugged in and connected to Wi-Fi all day when we're at the beach. Hopefully it's slowly pushing all those photos up to iCloud photo library. Yeah, I'm just using my iPhone now, but back when I had a camera card, I would always make a separate folder with a copy of the photos and I would copy to a little extra external drive I'd bring with me because I always was panicked. Like, what if the computer, you know, I guess they, they upload faster now, though, so it's probably not as big of a deal. Yeah, I mean, they, they do make it up and I'm not, I'm not taking RAWs. I did take RAWs for a little bit, but they were a little bit big. So it's it's just JPEGs and they're not super high resolution. So there's plenty of time during the day for them to upload. There's an app for the Mac I was thinking about when you were talking about moving photos to your wife's library called Power Photos. It's the same guy that made the one for... Yeah, Fat Cat. Fat Cat software. Uh, the, and, and it allows you to manage and merge libraries. I don't know if that would help you make that easier. I don't I don't know. I'd have to... I don't know. I would look into it. It might be something. Yeah, I, I have. I've looked at that application and a couple other ones. And those... I used to use... a iPhoto library manager. Yeah, I think uh, that's the same back guy. In, yeah. Back in the, yeah, same guy back in the iPhoto days. Those applications scare me a little bit because <laughs> I really like it. You know, Apple doesn't expect you to be cracking open their photo library package. Like it's just a folder full of files, but it's, you know, you're not meant to be uh, poking around in there. Um, and I'm sure it does a fine job, but I just like anything that could potentially anger photos. I've heard enough horror stories of people who have problems with photos. I so far haven't. So I just, I don't want to anger it in any way. <laughs> so I just, I just do it the old fashioned way using the approved routes, export on modified originals, import. These are all public functions of photos. Presumably they should work. And then I'm sticking with that. Well, hopefully we'll send this clip to Craig Federighi and hopefully he can walk up to you this year and say, John, we fixed the photos for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like it's coming. Like, you know, with family and the fa the family storage, it's just, you know, every year there's some little small step in that direction. I just hope they eventually get all the way there. Even Google Photos isn't all the way there. Google Photos has this kind of opt-in sharing with, like, spouses or, like, just a partner. Uh, I'm not sure if it preserves all quality and if it's really sharing. I haven't actually tried it. I've just read a little bit about it. They're farther along than Apple, but I still feel like they're not at the solution I described where you can arbitrarily pool libraries maintaining information about what came from where and have the ability to opt in or opt out depending on what you selected as your default behavior yeah and i still it's the thing for me is i still think it's a not everybody wants the exact same thing and that's going to be part of the problem this episode of the mac power users is brought to you by squarespace enter offer code mpu at checkout to get 10 percent off your first purchase so what's your next move are you going to create a blog or an online store or just make a website for the birth of your child or an upcoming wedding? No matter what your next move is, you're going to need a website and Squarespace is going to be there for you. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. The Squarespace platform is super flexible. It can set up a website for just about any need. They've got online commerce covered. They've got blogging templates and tools. They've got portfolio tools. doesn't matter what you want to build. They've got it for you. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do anything. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Squarespace has got it covered. 
They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help, and they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name right at Squarespace. You don't even have to go somewhere else for the domain name. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I switched Max Sparky and my law practice over to Squarespace years ago to avoid all the problems I was having with the other blogging engines. I've talked about that plenty on the show, but what I haven't talked much about is my wife's website. My wife wanted to make a uh, Disney blogging website because she loves Disney, and I just didn't want to be involved. I love my wife, but I don't want to be running her blog. You know, so we set up a Squarespace site. I gave her some basic training in it, and this was like three years ago, and that's it. In the three years since she started doing it, I haven't had anything to do with it, and that's why I love Squarespace. You can hand it off to a mere mortal, and they're going to be just fine running their own blog. So if you're a Disney nut and you want to see her Squarespace site, it's Disney Days with a Z in the days. But my big point here is that someone is always asking for help building a website, and it's great to help them out, but you don't want to take on a full-time job for the rest of that website's life. Squarespace allows you to solve that problem. It allows you to enable people who are not generally technically savvy to run and manage their own website. So don't just think about this service in terms of your own website. Think about it in terms of those people around you. And when you set them up, you can get them 10% off with the code MPU. Plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the Mac Power users, and we really appreciate that. So we thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Uh, so uh, you're, uh, you're still paying for your shoes programming on computers. Has any of that changed since the last time we talked? Uh, no, I mean, it's the same job, uh, more or less the same stuff. I mean, you're at a job a long time. I feel like the number of meetings you go to increases and then the amount of programming you do decreases. Uh, but, you know, that's that's par for the course. How, how do you deal with meetings? I'm, I'm actually curious because I know you're, like I said, you're very particular. I mean, going to meetings when you could be, that must be driving you nuts. Nah, I mean, I, you know, there's good meetings and bad meetings. I mean, uh, like if you're if you're sort of like the the line cook or what, I don't, I can't make kitchen analogies. I never worked in a kitchen. But anyway, if you're if you're sort of down in the trenches doing the work, you know, as we all start off doing, like just my first programming job, you're just a programmer. You start to have opinions about how things should be done at a slightly higher level of abstraction. Like, well, why am I even writing this program, or why is this? why is this thing structured the way it is I'm, I'm adding this function to this class but this class is stupid uh you know or you have opinions about the application or eventually you start having opinions about what the company should be doing in this area and what technology you know and so if you eventually you want to be moving up that ladder and, and having purview over more than just the the few lines of code that you're staring at right and to do that you have to interact with other people including people outside the technical organization and have opinions and be able to articulate them to the rest of the people who are not programmers and be able to talk to other programmers about larger concepts and have good ideas about, you know, architectural issues and other things like that. And so I feel like I've traveled that path in my programming career to be able to have more knowledge and experience that is applicable at a broader level than 
just the individual line of code that you're looking at and that involves going to more meetings so it's you know you take the the good and the bad some meetings can be boring but if you want to like if you want to get things done like if you think about you know craig federighi he's not doing any programming but certainly he's having large important influence over the the software organization and even just three levels down the org chart from him there are people who probably still don't do much programming but are very important to deciding like what is the architecture of the next version of photos or whatever designing how should the family photo library just described thinking about how that should feature work uh, should work and how it should be architected to work with all the back-end systems that they have and how the back-end might need to be changed to scale to the new demands and blah 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 that is uh, an important and exciting job which mostly doesn't involve uh writing code and does involve yes going to meetings but also like you know writing up uh the thoughts about an architecture and designing it sort of a big block diagram and stuff like that so there's more of that and and less uh you know just straight straight up coding but i you know i still enjoy that as well so do you i mean do you give like presentations or when you write stuff up i mean how how do you go about that uh, I mean, some a lot of it is it's kind of you know the the writing I, I've done the technical writing you know, OS ten reviews and all that stuff uh, prepares you a lot for this because a lot of it is writing up ideas for architecture or uh, you know other stuff in a way that is clear to people who know what you're talking about and is vaguely understandable to people who are outside the technical realm. Yeah. You got to get the business types too on board. Yeah. And you just, it's just clear writing. Like for especially your business writing, you don't really need to have any flair. You just need to actually say in clear language and simple sentences, what it is that you're talking about. And that is a surprisingly rare skill in most businesses, not just among programmers, but among anybody really like, communicating complicated it means you have to understand the idea well enough to write the two sentences that clearly say you know like even just the skill this this kind of skill if you're in a meeting and people are discussing something i think we should do it this way i think we should do it that way what about this what about that blah 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 uh, and you have some big conversation and you try to come to some kind of consensus about either a plan or possible options for plans things you're going to do next to be able to come out of that meeting which is a technical meeting, like you're talking about technical stuff, like all sorts of techie details that are about, you know, programming and servers and networks and all sorts of techie stuff like that and debate different approaches to come out of that meeting and to be able to write a three-sentence summary of what you're going to do and why is a surprisingly, you know, important and valuable skill because a lot of people might come out with like three pages of notes, but no one wants to read that. But what you want to do is like, do I really, did I really understand and follow everything that was discussed in this meeting? Uh, and then can I, if I really did understand it, I should be able to write a couple of sentences that anybody who wasn't in that meeting, even if they're non-technical, can read and say, this is the problem we had. Here's some approaches we considered. Here's why we picked this one. That's it. Uh, that is a very important skill for technical organizations. I'd even argue all your podcasting has probably helped you with some of that stuff too, because you've spent a lot of time explaining your position, you know, in front of a microphone. Yeah. And really just, just actually understanding everything that's said. I think a lot of meetings have a lot of people talking and only some percentage of the people in the room understand what the other person is saying. And part of being a technical person is you're supposed to be able to actually understand all the technical stuff uh, and not just vaguely, but like, fundamentally like because you've been doing because that's what you get for being like you know the line cook for all those years you should actually understand the details of the stuff but you should also understand all the different trade-offs about you know 
all the different technical trade-offs, all the different sort of people management trade-offs. Uh, you know, you you have to you have to actually understand that to be able to follow and summarize and you know articulate, or even you know, if you have a position that you want to put forward, to be able to articulate an argument in a way that people can relate to, that you know, speak some whatever language that you know the stakeholders uh, need to hear. When I started college, I was an aerospace engineering major, and um, I uh, I joined the debate team because I felt like engineers are generally not that articulate, and if I could get good at talking, that would help me in my career, which is uh, kind of what led me to where I am now, which is weird, but anyway. Well, I, I'm glad that you're doing that stuff, because I think you probably would be really good at it. <laughs> I, well, heard... I, don't, I mean, there are aspects of it that I feel like I have some aptitude for, but there are whole sections of it that I'm just terrible at, and I just want to go back to my desk and write code. But, I mean, that's, that's I feel like it's the path you have to walk of, uh, I mean, the, the, the unkind way is to think of it as the Peter Principle. I remember that one from business books in the 80s, that everyone is, uh, everyone is promoted to their level of incompetence. So, like, if you're, if you're a super, uh, you know, awesome, like, uh, you know, programmer, they'll eventually promote you to be where you're not programming anymore. So you're really good at programming and they keep promoting you until you get, okay, now you're, now you're managing programmers and maybe you're okay at that, but now you're managing managers of programmers and now you're terrible because you're a bad manager of managers. So they promoted you. Everything that you were good at caused you to be promoted to do a slightly different job and you stop when you hit that level of incompetence that you're not going to be promoted anymore. Yeah. And if you're a lousy manager, they'll just make you a programmer. I get it. Yeah. Well, they don't. They never do. That's the thing. You're promoted to your level of incompetence. So the organization is filled with people who used to be good at what they did, but everybody, you know, has stopped at the at the position where they can no longer be promoted, and they're not doing the thing they used to be good at. So you know, organ the organizations try to avoid that. And, and you know, I'm trying to avoid that as well. Um, I, that was that was one of the ailments of our companies for many years. Um, they to get promoted, you had to go into management. And I resisted that for a very, very long time because I didn't want to be a manager and I thought I was a good programmer. So why would, why would I want to stop being a good programmer and start being a lousy manager? Oh, it's the only way to get promoted and you get more money and blah, blah, blah. And you'll advance in the organization. But I didn't want to do that. And so I didn't. I didn't get promoted for a really, really long time until the organization changed and said, and, you know, to more modern practice, we'll have a track for managers, but there'll also be a track for what they call individual contributors. I forget where that word came from but many years ago it got adopted by most of silicon valley and other tech companies so there's the ic track and the management track and they are parallel to each other all the way to the top so you don't have to become a manager which basically lets the people who are good at doing programmery and tech things continue to do programmery and tech things and provide value for the organization while still advancing in their careers now when we spoke last you were saying you were doing most of your coding in bb edit i believe is that still still the case yeah, and, and then when you're writing stuff for work as well, is BB Edit still, is it your word processor as well? I know you used to do the uh, the great Mac OS reviews in BB Edit. So at this point for writing, like I still still do write things in BB Edit, but at work, our work has recently in the past couple of years switched over to Google Docs. Okay. Which I think is a big improvement over what we were doing before like Microsoft Office. And so most of the stuff I'm writing at work, I write directly in Google Docs, not in BB Edit. How do you like working in Google Docs? I like it. I think, I mean, like I said, it's, it's so much better than passing around Word documents and doing track changes and all this mind-numbing stuff, especially since, like, there was Mac and Windows incompatibility. It was always a, a frustration. But Google Docs works for everybody. It works in real time. It's the collaboration between multiple people. It's not the most feature-rich environment, and it is murder on your battery like so many <laughs> google things 
uh, but the benefits far outweigh the costs. So I'm I'm a pretty big fan. Yeah, there's just nothing that collaborates like Google. The limited feature set, I think, is a blessing because it stops like with Word and PowerPoint and stuff like that. There were so many features that eventually, like the the Word and PowerPoint mavens, would just sort of get in there and and do all sorts of fancy things. But with Google Docs, like it comes with a bunch of can styles for headings. Uh, you know, there's simple paragraph styles that you can do bulleted lists, simple tables, uh, you know, images and like, like that's, that's basically, there's not that much you can do. You can't screw it up that much. You can't make it too ugly. If you just accept the defaults, you will get a reasonable looking document and everybody can see it and everybody can edit it and everybody can comment on it. And it works for everybody. It works in a web browser. I'm a big fan. Now from a file management standpoint, living and working in the Google ecosystem and in Google docs and in Google drive, is is very different than um, having files and folders on your computer or using something like Dropbox or and sharing documents that way. Are are you sharing documents within your organization and keeping your own documents within the Google system, within Google Drive, and and all of those types of things, or are you just writing in there? How is that all working? Yeah, the one thing Google Docs does very poorly is what we used to call file organization. Now, Google being Google, it does search well. But at a certain point, search starts to feel like, you know, this guessing game. Like, what? I don't remember what I called this thing. What are some words that appeared? And Oh, guess what? Most of my documents contain those words because they're all about the same topic at work. Uh, I eventually find what I want, but I find it eternally frustrating to, like, even just going to, like, the Google Drive screen, it's, I can't understand how it sorts things. It claims to sort things by like date last modified by me, but it's a lie and there it's not organized in a reasonable way. And yeah, you can make folders and file things away, but because it's a web browser, like it's worse than the finder, which is saying something like their organization of they, they haven't figured out a good paradigm. And I think the paradigm that most people use and the one that more or less works is I have no idea where this document is. Every time I want it, I'm going to search for it. I've resorted to having to use stars, like to star things, so I can at least keep track of the eight or ten most important documents I'm working on. I can just go to the star view and at least see them. But if I forget to star one, oh, it's the worst. Uh, so that aspect of it is terrible. But yeah, I am sharing documents with uh, across the whole organization. And I don't really have many... Like, if I had something that was really my own document, like, I use BBA to take my, like, personal notes... If I'm taking meeting notes, I would take them that I'm not going to share. I take them in BB Edit. If I'm writing like my own little to-do lists or like notes for the day or a little, I, I use BB Edit for that for Scratch and, and use BB Edit for all my programming. So it's always BB Edit is always open and I'm always using it to write little things in it. But those are the things I know are just for me or I'm using it to edit source code. Does the new Mac, um, does it, does it uh, build faster? I mean, do you even do that for the type of programming you do? I do not do that for the type of programming I do. Um, I mean, the only place I would notice it is perhaps in like, I don't know, maybe file system operations. I'm I'm doing a lot of uh, Node programming, Node.js, JavaScript programming uh, locally on my Mac. Uh, Previously, most of my development had been done on shared Linux computers, right? And I would do the editing in my editor, but it would save the file out to a remote computer. Now I'm doing a lot of stuff locally because Node runs on the Mac. And if you've used Node for any period of time, and you use the uh, the npm package manager, and you do like npm install, and it it downloads uh, all your dependencies and your dependencies dependencies, and like the, so the Node ecosystem has a lot of dependencies. So you may just pick three or four popular modules that you're going to use, and it ends up installing like thousands of dependencies, each of which has to be downloaded from a website and installed and sprayed out into a bunch of files in your file system. 
that's faster because the SSD in my MacBook Pro is faster than the SSD was in my Mac Pro, uh, and the CPU is a little bit faster. So I do notice that, but that's not the same as compiling. Uh, and I'm not doing anything that I would notice the speed difference, like when I'm just running stuff locally on my Mac. So not a big difference, but I'm not using compiled languages. I'm not building anything like that. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by Fracture. Visit fracture.me and save 15% off your first order with the exclusive code POWER15. So did you take a bunch of photos over this past holiday season? And are they just sitting on your phone? That tends to be what we do these days. We take all of these amazing photos with these super powerful phones that we just keep in our pockets, and then we do nothing with them. Maybe we post them on social media, maybe they go on Instagram or Facebook, but then they just fade off into the digital ether. Wouldn't it be nice to actually take these photos and do something special? Well, Fracture to the rescue. Fracture is a photo decor company that will print your photos directly on glass and add a laser-cut rigid backing so they're ready to display right out of the box. They even include the wall anchor, so all you have to do is upload your photo, pick a size, and you're ready to go. The Fracture process is amazing. The color and the contrast of your photo really pop, and the sleek, frameless design lets your photos stand out while they match any decorating style. And Fracture prints make the most amazing, thoughtful, and unique gifts. I personally have given Fracture gift certificates and Fracture prints for weddings, anniversaries, birthdays, and they are always the hit of the party. Fractures are handmade in Gainesville, Florida from U.S. sourced materials, and Fracture is a green company operating in a carbon-neutral factory, or fractory if you prefer. So if you haven't had a chance to check out Fracture yet, you've got to do this. So go through that photo album, take a look at some of your favorite shots from this holiday season, and pick a couple to upload to Fracture now. So head on over to Fracture.me, upload your photos, pick out a couple of different sizes. I kind of like the square ones. The little square ones make great photos for your desk or for podcast artwork. Um, and then you can save 15% off your first Fracture order with the exclusive code POWER15. So again, Fracture.me and use the coupon code POWER15. Thanks to Fracture for their continued support of Mac Power users. John, uh, for years, you were the guy who wrote these amazing reviews of every new Mac operating system. Uh, Mac OS 10, I guess we'll call it the Mac OS 10 days. Uh, you're not doing that anymore, but I'm sure you've got some opinions. Um, where do you see the Mac OS at this point and, you know, what needs to improve? Well, the thing most people talk about uh, for, you know, the, the cranky Mac users is they they want to see long-standing bugs go away. They want to see, like, the number the number of things that they encounter that are, like, broken or buggy in the operating system decrease over time, especially if we're not getting all sorts of fabulous new features. So they're like, all right, well, I'm, you know, I don't, I can't even conceive of a fancy new feature, they might say, not me, but they might say, I, I, I'm not looking for new features, but, boy, this is, there's this annoying bug. Like, any of the bugs we just talked about with the, with the laptops, those would all fall into that category, as would any other kind of bug with a particular program, or, you know... Making the finder faster. Yeah, something you do on the computer that doesn't work the way you want it to. And you're like, boy, I hope they fix that, right? Or any program you use routinely, uh, you hope improves in the next version of the operating system. Um, and Apple has claimed to have been doing that for the past few releases. Like, they've done the the snow releases. You got Yosemite and then El Capitan, Right. Those the, the Yosemite is the first big one, and then they have a follow up uh, with El Cap release that's supposed to be like a refinement and improvement. 
then you've got Sierra and then High Sierra. Which, you know, it's just it's the the, the uh, leopard and snow leopard pattern. Um, but by most accounts, including my own, High Sierra has not felt like a refinement and stabilization of Sierra. I think they did fix a lot of long-standing bugs, but there's also been a lot of new bugs and just other general weird flakiness. It doesn't make it feel like a refinement release. So I am looking for that, which is, you know, I guess just overall quality improvements. Like it shouldn't feel, uh, you know, over the long term, it shouldn't feel more flaky than the previous one. Obviously, I'm willing for like the point zero to feel a little bit more flaky than the previous one. Right, but by the point one, point two, point three, point four release, I want it to have settled down, and so I want to see most of the bugs from the old version gone, and most of the major bugs from the new new one gone. And High Sierra has had some bad luck, a run of bad luck with the the security bugs alone have been a problem with the whole you know uh, getting in through a password dialogue when you shouldn't be, but just general flakiness with like the you know the the lid opening like i I upgraded from sierra to high sierra and none of my laptop complaints improved in any way like all those things i just complained about they're they're all exactly the same so like well that like what did i get out of high sierra and and because there are not many large flashy new features all you've got to look for is like you know performance and stability um and i think you know there has been something like that like the, the the new window manager you know enhanced with metal or whatever is a performance improvement like i i recognize that not that's an important one but if you hit mission control and see my millions of windows fly off into the little tiles it's faster than it used to be so thumbs up there but on the other hand some people are having kernel panics because their gpu wasn't well supported by you know high sierra or whatever so stability improvements everybody wants those especially on the mac platform which doesn't seem like it's moving much um for big features, I think there's plenty of room for improvement there. It's just a matter of what Apple wants to invest in. Obviously, the Finder, I have a million complaints about, but no one really cares about the Finder anymore, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, forget about Apple for a second. What if you woke up tomorrow and they said, uh, John, you got Tim Cook's job. All right, what are, you gonna, what are the big things you're going to do with Mac OS? That's not fun because Tim Cook has to worry about the whole company. Like, it's probably not the smartest thing to do to invest a lot more in the Finder. On the well, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying you're going to have the job a long time. But... <laughs> yeah, right. We've redirected all efforts into into fixing the finder that no one cares about. So that like I don't disagree with the prioritization. Like the time for that has kind of passed. But as you know, I I would personally prefer. But if but just for the Mac in general, like it could be argued that now is not the time to put big investment in the Mac either in the Mac operating system. Like they should be working harder to try to figure out what their future strategy is for a more unified platform across all their products like that's probably the right thing to do but uh just as a plain old mac user every aspect of the mac operating system i feel like should be up for grabs for you know potential improvement on a recent atp i talked a lot about window management there are plenty of things you can do related to window management that could be good ideas like in the beginning of the mac we saw uh, the mac os 10 we saw a lot of that because classic mac os had its way of doing things and when mac os 10 came along it had a bunch of new ideas it had the dock, which was a thing that did not exist in classic macOS, and the dock evolved over time. It had an expose, which is a thing that did not exist in classic macOS for a way to manage Windows. It adopted spaces, which is an idea from many previous systems of like virtual desktops and stuff, and it refined that idea. Dashboard, another idea of how you could have things that are kind of like desk accessories, but not really. Like in the early days of macOS 10, they tried all sorts of new and interesting things. There's no reason you have to stop doing that. It's not as if 
oh, we've tried those things and now that's it. Everything is done. Every one of those things before it came along, you could have said, well, you don't need anything else. You've got everything. But, this, you know, that there's always new things to try, new things to experiment with. And most of those are not like, oh, you need a new kernel or something like that. They're user land features, right? Or even just the applications. Um, different kinds of applications, different models for applications. Before the iLife applications came back, Mac apps didn't look like that. That was a new idea of how to make a good Mac app. Oh, make it one window and make it simple. And, you know, whether you like it or not, it was an interesting new idea of how to write a Mac app versus the old world of multiple windows and palettes and stuff like that. That kind of change has slowed to a trickle on the Mac, and it has nothing to do with the Mac being like that like there's nothing more to do, sort of the end of history illusion, like now we're done. No, it's just they stopped putting time and money into it, which again, may be appropriate given their prospects of their other platforms. I'm not really arguing about the priorities. I'm just saying it is entirely possible to continue doing what they used to do to the Mac, hopefully at not great expense. Uh, and, you know, some ideas are going to work out, some ideas aren't. But if you just say we're not going to try any new ideas like that or the, the things that we've done, we're not going to change. Like, when's the last time the doc changed? Not that the doc probably needs to change in radical ways, but they're not even trying anymore, right? They changed mission control. They changed expose to mission control, but then it's more or less been the same. They they fiddled with spaces a little bit, but, like, there are whole new ideas. We talked about Windows 10 sets on the last ATP. That's an idea that maybe an idea like that, not that exact idea. Uh, figuring out how to help Mac users deal with multiple windows and group them and restore them with sort of a cloud type of, uh, you know, arrangement. Those are ideas that would be fun for Apple to try on the Mac if they were so inclined. Or even just basic things like, I mean, they're actually probably doing this stuff, like time machine improvements to take advantage of their new file system. Uh, that Those will be great when they come. I, I feel they've already done some of them, but further improvement of time machine to take advantage of all the fancy features that the new file system provides will make Time Machine better. Time Machine, another great feature that they added and then didn't really do that much with. And so it kind of is what it is, but it never got fantastically better. Or they never thought of what what is the thing that will replace Time Machine that will be even better. Is you know is anyone even working on that? So I there is I see a huge potential road ahead for the Mac, but on the other hand, I kind of get the idea of them not quite investing as much as in it because it, their time is probably better spent thinking even farther down the road to how they're going to deal with you know, an Apple OS that spans all their devices. They're so close to it now. iOS essentially spans all their devices except for the Mac, and all their devices use the, you know, mock BSD Darwin kernel that started as the underpinnings of uh, Mac OS X, which started as the underpinnings of Next Step. So they're close, and that's really probably where they should be spending their time, but user interface-wise, I think there's plenty more they could do on the Mac. Do you think that at some point they are going to put the Mac, the, the Mac operating system somehow into ios or some combine them somehow uh, i mean there's that rumor of like them trying to come up with sort of a, a more unified user interface framework for developers so the developers you know developers now can make a single code base into an ios app an ipad app and then make the little watch app as part of that right but the mac app is just totally different like you can't share much of the code with that so that would be an incremental step along that path like Eventually, they have to find a way. It's not. It's not as if the interfaces are going to be unified. It's not as if uh, Macs are going to become big iPads, right? I mean, that could happen, but I think that would happen by the Mac line dying off. But if they keep they keep the Mac line around, if they're determined to keep the Mac line around instead of having iOS expand to take over all the functionality of the Mac, which is the other possibility, 
But if they keep the Mac line around, they will have to find a way to make it a viable platform for a world of people with like, you know, with thousands or I don't know how big it is, millions of iOS developers and a much smaller and I would imagine shrinking number of Mac developers, right? So something has to be done about the Mac and Apple has a lot of options in this area and all of them should be able to allow folks like us to continue to use Macs or things that are like Macs in a similar way, keyboard, mouse, screen, windows. Like I feel like that can survive any technical transition, but the specific Mac platform can't survive without developers writing applications for it. And to make that continue to happen, Apple's going to have to add more technological sharing between iOS and the Mac. Yeah. Um, so if that ru- that rumor may actually be good for the Mac, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But if you can make it easier to make a Mac app, that would hopefully lead to more Mac apps. So long as they're uh, they're actually made for the Mac and not just ports of something else. Yeah. I mean, I, I you have to be open to the idea of what constitutes a Mac app can change. I mentioned the iLife apps. The iOS apps were nothing like the best Mac apps in classic Mac OS. The, be- the best Mac apps available for your Mac 2 CI or whatever did not look like any of the iLife apps. It's possible to change what a definition of a good, compelling Mac application is. That can continue to happen. So I think it is possible to make, and Apple has tried a few times to make a- Mac applications that bring some new ideas. A lot of them bring ideas, interface ideas from iOS, not all of which are particularly appropriate. So maybe they're not successful, but the, Apple should keep trying new ideas. I would argue that even like, uh, you know, Final Cut uh, Pro uh, 10 and uh, and the new version of iMovie is different from like Final Cut Pro 4, right? Uh, it's a new way to edit video with a new interface that also doesn't look like the iOS applications that also doesn't look like, you know, uh, whatever you would consider a standard Mac OS X application. So there's room to innovate here. And I, I feel like you can, you can like, no one says the Mac stopped being a Mac when the iLife applications came out, even though they were so radically different. And same thing, no one is saying the Mac stopped being a Mac when, you know, Safari came out and, you know, it looked very different from any other web browser. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of flexibility. Yeah, I mean, to, for better or for worse, Photos is another app that really changes the way a Mac app what looks and works yeah i would say mostly for the worst there but th- but it's worth trying those things like it could be like maybe that it, what is the problem is it the problem the the framework they use to adapt the you know the ios code is the problem the interface paradigms that are inappropriate on a, on a massive screen but that are appropriate on a phone or an ipad like they, they need to sort that out but uh all the while i think the things that attract us to the mac like the fact that you can do things on a mac that you can't do on the ipad because we have more control over it that will continue to be a valuable part of the platform. Uh, we we don't talk about too much about you know news and rumors on our show, but having you on, and I know how knowledgeable you are about a lot of the silicon and you know the things going on, and occasionally you hear these rumors about Apple working on an ARM-based Mac. And for the folks at home that don't know what that means, it's the uh, the Intel chips are in the Macs, and the ARM Apple's design of the ARM chips is in the iPhone and the iPad, and as Apple's got better at making those, a lot of folks are wondering, well, why wouldn't they put one of their own chips in like the MacBook and hopefully give it better battery life and things like that. I don't really keep up with it that much, but I know you do. I mean, what are your thoughts? Is that something that we should be looking out for or is that a pie in the sky thing? It's not pie in the sky. Like while, while we've all been enjoying better and better iPhones and iPads, 
slowly but surely, the system on a chip, the ARM, CPU, GPU combination things that are in our iPads and iPhones have gotten to the point where they are about as fast and sometimes faster than the chips Apple puts in its low-end laptops. All right, so right now, the, you know, your iPhone 10 has a CPU that would do just fine in you know in a 12-inch MacBook. Like, I think it actually might be faster than 12-inch MacBook by a substantial amount, but it's in both single and multi-threaded, right? So you can no longer say that ARM chips are great and all, but they're too slow to go in Macs. They are not too slow to go in Macs. And Apple made those chips. Like, Apple is a, you know essentially makes its own ARM chips. They license the architecture from ARM, right, but they build their own chips, and now they're building their own GPUs as well, now that they're not using imagination technologies or whatever, right? Apple is really good at that. Its phone and iPad chips are amazingly good. They're the leaders in the industry. They get the best performance by far. It's not even close. Apple's really good. So why does Apple continue to use uh, Intel CPUs in the Mac? Um, the Mac line continues up from laptops to big professional computers that have many, many cores. Like the iMac Pro comes with 18 cores. There is no 18-core ARM chip that Apple makes. So if Apple wants to go to ARM on the Mac and get off of Intel entirely, which is what Apple has done with every other CPU transition, when they went from 68K to PowerPC, when they went from PowerPC to Intel, they didn't keep both around. It's like you go from the, you get rid of the old one and you go to the new one. And it doesn't mean that they have to do that forever, but they've done that every time they've done it in the past. So if they want to, like, chances are, if they want to go to ARM, they want to go to ARM everywhere, which means Apple is now on the hook to come up with an ARM processor suitable for an iMac Pro and a Mac Pro. The other option is Apple could get out of the Pro market, but as of last year, Apple has rededicated itself to the Pro market, has just released the iMac Pro. So I don't see them anytime soon saying, you know what, we changed our mind again. Forget about the Pro market. We're not making those anymore. So to transition the Mac line in its entirety to the ARM, Apple needs to make a very big a series of, of ARM chips or system on a chips that are much bigger and much hotter and much more powerful than what they make now. Apple could totally do that. They're great at it. They would take them maybe one or two tries to get as good as they are with phone chips, but it would be fine. The question is, does Apple want to spend the amount of time and money it would take to make all the fancy ARM chips they would need to make for Macs? Because they can they can piggyback on what they already are doing for the iPad and the phone for the lower end and, and mid-tier Macs, but for the high-end Macs, they would have to have a dedicated effort to make one or possibly multiple fancy new chips for that. That would cost a lot of money, take a lot of time, take resources away from things that could be working on iPhone and iPad chips. And the question is, is it worthwhile to invest that much additional time and money into the Mac? Or is it better to just let the Mac sort of ride off into the sunset and wait to the point where our 27-inch iPad Pro is as powerful as the iMac Pro, and that's what everyone's buying anyway because all, all of us Mac users are dead or retired or both. Well, and what about the transition costs again? Those of us who have been around for a while have been around a few major transitions for the Mac. You know, we, we went from, from classic to the, um, the the 10 days, and then we went, um, you know, from to the Intel chips. And, uh, you know, we, we've had to suffer with, with software. And is it compatible? Is it not? And how do I keep my old stuff running and, and virtualization and all of those things? Apple, I think, is really good at those transitions, though. Like, yeah, I've, I've been through all the transitions with them, and they're somewhat painful, but they go quicker than you think. And Apple, Apple, I think, is good at making them work as well as possible. 
Um, the difficult part about the Mac transition is in all, in all the past times the Mac has, has changed platforms, it was the most important product in the company or close to it, even in the Intel transition. Yeah, they had iPods and stuff. Uh, and I think the iPhone was out by then. I don't remember the exact timeline, but the Mac was still super important, right? If you try to make a transition and in the old style where it's like, we're going ARM, everybody, everybody uh, rebuild your applications. Like when they took people to 68K to PowerPC, rebuild your applications as fat binaries. Or when they went to Intel, it was basically just rebuild your applications because they won't run in the blue box forever, right? Everyone was on board. It's like, oh, of course, we are conscientious Mac developers. We will go to your sessions to learn how to recompile our applications for PowerPC and our Intel. We will learn how to make fat binaries. We will change to, you know, whatever new IDE or whatever new compiler we need to do this, right? If you tried that now, how many Mac applications would you lose because their developers can't be bothered to bring them along, right? Or because that might be the time someone says, you know what, the Mac is more trouble than it's worth. We don't sell them any copies on the Mac anyway, right? Do you have the goodwill of the community to come along in that transition? Part of that is about Apple's attitude. If Apple looks like they're investing more in the Mac and they're selling more and more Macs and they're spending more and more money on it, that will you know will make developers more enthusiastic about transitioning. But that is a risk, and it was less of a risk when, again, you know, 68k to PowerPC. Like, where are those Mac developers going to go? Like, there was no other Apple platform. Like, they could leave and be Windows developers or whatever. But like, the Mac was the most important product Apple had. So either they're going to get everyone to come along or the company's going to go out of business, right? Which almost happened <laughs> a couple times now in the 90s, right? But but they made it. But now I worry that this type of transition would just further narrow, uh, it would weed out even more applications. It's like, yeah, they may be working fine and they're not updated that frequently, but if you told the person they had to rebuild for ARM and it was kind of a pain, they might not bother. And if they've got a whiteboard somewhere in Cupertino that says in 10 years we're going to merge these operating systems, it's even less incentive. Yeah, not not even merge. Like, like I said, there you know two scenarios is one the Mac just fades away as iOS devices become bigger and more capable, right? And then you you never have to merge them. Like the Mac just like like it fades away with us, right? And the other one is you incrementally bring them together by you know unifying the user interface frameworks and eventually let you write a single application that can run on all of Apple's platforms or at least on the phone, the iPad, and the Mac. And once you've done that, the Mac just becomes like this kind of weird ipad with a mouse and a keyboard and maybe with or without touch you know like you can get there by a series of incremental steps sort of like bring it in the fold or you can allow it just to just fade off and go to the side and replace it with with the ipad um for now it seems like they're keeping the mac going and the rumors are that they're you know with the framework thing that they're going to try to bring the platforms closer to each other um but there's no sense in there being a mac if all it is is a bigger iPad. If you want a bigger iPad, Apple should make a bigger iPad, and they, they have been, right? But I'm thinking more of like the uh, Microsoft uh, Surface Studio Pro. thing looks like an iMac, but it's really a big tablet, right? Apple could go there, and Apple can go there either by making the Mac be able to do that or by making the iPad be able to do that. You end up in the same place. It's it just like which branch of the family tree did you follow to get there? Yeah, and, and, but the priority, the, the underlying operating system makes a big difference of, in terms of the the way that works. I mean, there's a there's a big difference between an iMac that tilts down and an iPad that tilts up, I guess. Yeah, like there's unique, the unique attributes of the Mac is because it's old and fidgety, there's tons more stuff that you have to worry about, but also it is so much more capable 
because if you're willing to deal with all those fidgety things, you have the freedom to do so much more than you can do on an iPad. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Omni Outliner, the best outlining app for the Mac, iPad, and iPhone. Recently, I was attending a complicated client meeting where I took a lot of notes in Omni Outliner. They were describing a very complex transaction that had many moving pieces. And one of the things about the meeting was everybody was jumping around. We had a lot of people sharing information. When the meeting was over, I sent out a PDF from Omni Outliner to everyone with the summary outline of what really happened based on all the information we collected. I got two emails the next day from people saying, how did you do that? Well, the answer is Omni Outliner. Omni Outliner is simply the best outlining application for the Mac, iPad, and iPhone. It's made by the Omni Group, and those guys really care about making quality applications. If you ever visit the Omni Group, you'd be really impressed, because not only do they have the best programmers in the business, they also have some of the best designers in the business. So when you combine great code with great design, you get an application like Omni Outliner. Omni Outliner works across all of the Apple hardware. You can use it on your Mac, iPad, or iPhone, and everything syncs with each other using the Omni Group's own sync service, OmniPresence. This goes way beyond everything just works. Not only does everything work, it continues to improve. Over the years, Omni Outliner has added a bunch of new features like keyword filtering, distraction-free mode, dark mode. They have touch bar support if you've got one of the fancy new MacBook Pros. And their keyboard shortcuts on the iPad are great. I think it's one of the best implementations of keyboard shortcuts of any iPad app. Whether you need the basic feature set with Omni Outliner Essentials or whether you need to upgrade to Omni Outliner Pro, they've got you covered with all of the key features. And like I said, everything works everywhere, which to me is essential. I've even added entries to my Omni Outlines using my phone. To learn more, head over to the omnigroup.com. They've got a full explanation of how the app works. You can download a free trial to make sure it's right for you. If you start using the app, you're going to have stories just like I did at the beginning of this ad read. Omni Outliner just solves those problems for you. And let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. You know, we were talking uh, right before the break about, you know, the Mac. And uh, we've been kind of dancing around this idea of the iMac Pro and the Mac Pro throughout the show. And uh, that's something you're pretty passionate about. Uh, wh what do you think now that the iMac Pro has shipped and uh, we're promised a Mac Pro at some point? Uh, I'm optimistic. I mean, by all accounts, the iMac Pro is a really good computer. It is exactly what you would hope it would be. And, and you know, I, I always picture the iMac Pro in the alternate future that might have been where Apple had stuck to its plan to not make the Mac Pro this would have been Apple's highest end computer. So it makes sense that it's actually a really good computer that fulfills that role. It is not just like a hastily slapped together iMac with a faster CPU in it. Before Apple had their change of heart last year, this would have been their top end computer. There would be no Mac Pro. So I, I think it's, you know, it's a, it seems like it's a great computer. It does what you want from a pro computer. It's got all, all the, the specs and stats that you want. Uh, it is reportedly very quiet. Uh, it is jammed into a little skinny iMac case for reasons that are not important to pro users. And so it's a little bit slower than it might have to be. But I don't mind any of that because Apple did change course last year and they are going to make a Mac Pro. And so that leaves room above the, the iMac Pro for a computer that is 100% dedicated to being 
a utilitarian pro Mac with no compromises anywhere. Not It's not going to have to be very tiny to fit into the back of a monitor. Uh, they can use all the full-fledged, full-speed parts they want. It will be upgradable. It will be modular, so the screen is separate from the computer. I am very excited about what this computer will be because I spent several years worried that Apple was just not going to make that kind of computer at all anymore. And so now that that computer is going to exist, and especially now that it doesn't actually exist and I can map all my fantasies onto it, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm super happy with the iMac Pro because any complaint I might have about the iMac Pro, it's like, well, that's fine. This is the all-in-one Pro computer. It's amazing. It's like, do you want a really powerful computer but also want it to be all-in-one nice sleek package? The iMac Pro is an amazing incarnation of that idea. Yeah, I think they were really smart to tell us about the Mac Pro because the reception of the iMac Pro would have been a lot different if people didn't know. Yeah, we'd still we'd still be screaming about like it, it, we'd be trashing what is actually a great computer to say. But what about you know why why is the iMac Pro thermal throttle itself slightly? Why is everything slightly down clock inside there as you know versus what it would be in a PC? This people were doing benchmarks. This why can you take an old cheese grater Mac Pro like the old tower ones from like 2010 or 2012? take out the gpu buy a pc gpu off the shelf right now slap it in and it's faster in benchmarks than the imac pro because the cheese grater is huge and has huge cooling capacity and you could put a giant hot pc gpu in there and it's faster than the gpu in the imac pro in the brand new five thousand dollar imac pro a 2012 computer shouldn't be able to beat that thing in benchmarks uh, that use gpus and yet it can uh that's what we would be complaining about if we didn't know that the mac pro was coming now we can just say, yeah, fine, but that cheese grater is humongous and, you know, big and hot and the iMac uh, CPU is faster and yada, yada, yada. So it's it's such a relief to know that there is another computer coming that makes different decisions than this one, which allows the iMac Pro to be exactly what it is. And what it is is an amazing all-in-one computer. And you've got a, at home an older cheese grater, right? I mean, yep, I got a 2008 Mac Pro that I planned. Someone, someone just tweeted to me today in a podcast in 2011. I said, "Yeah, I'll probably get a computer this year or next year." That was in 2011, so that obviously didn't happen. I've been waiting for like the next big step up, but then they kind of stopped updating the cheese graters as often as uh, as I wanted them to. So I was always like, "Well, let me wait for the next big upgrade." Then they came out with the trash can Mac Pro which was interesting, but I'm like, well, I'll wait for the second generation, but they never made a second generation. <laughs> they, they kept the same computer there for three years. In fact, you can still buy it on Apple's website, which is now like a four-year-old computer. So I'm I'm waiting for the announced but not yet shipping Mac Pro. And by then my computer will be 10 years old and then I'll replace it with the Mac Pro, hopefully. Do you think Apple learned its lessons from the trash can Mac Pro? I'm, I mean, I know you will never be satisfied with the with the Apple Mac Pro that that ships, but what what will it take for you to be satisfied with the new Mac Pro? Do you think you're just going to to buy whatever Apple releases, or are you looking for something specific? Well, I mean, remember the Apple the Apple that made the trash can is essentially the same Apple that made the cheese grater. Like, it was, this is Johnny Ive. It's mostly the same leadership organization. I mean, Steve Jobs is there at one point and not there for another, but Steve Jobs was, you know, if anything, would be a stickler for more of the aesthetic of, of the trash can of being small and simple, right? Uh, but the cheese grater design, I, I, I searched for this online for so long, and maybe I'm just imagining it. I could not find a clip. But I recall 
during the like the Power Mac G5 introduction, which was the introduction of that cheese grater tower case design, at some point, somebody, I thought it was Johnny Ive, but I can't find him on video saying it, uh, directly compared the design of the cheese grater to heat exchangers, like the, you would see up in the ceiling of a big industrial space, right? Like large metal boxes that take in air at one temperature and through heating or cooling coils, you know, extract heat you know or add heat or whatever and put push out hair at a different temperature that they were sort of utilitarian machines the metal box that takes air in one side and pushes it out the other and that that informed the design of the of the cheese grater that it is if you look at it it is a big box the entire front is full of holes the entire back is full of holes air goes in the front and goes out the back and cool air goes in the front hot air goes out the back it is designed as an appliance for extracting heat which by that point in the world of computing and still today was one of the most important jobs of pro hardware because all the pro components multi-core chips big hot gpus potentially multiple gpus even the ram even the ram in my computer has heat sinks on it right everything in there makes heat so if you want to design a professional computer a professional piece of equipment it starts to have to to look like like you know pro audio gear or like big amplifiers with lots of fins and heat sinks like the job of this thing is to be as powerful as it can be and the case you build around it is built to accommodate that it's not built to look simple to be sleek to match your flower vase in the corner right to be unobtrusive like it's, that's not the purpose of the, the cheese grater is not unobtrusive right it is not something you can yeah, sort of put on your desk as a beautiful object like the, the Power Mac G4 Cube. Its job is to be powerful, utilitarian, reliable, sturdy, expandable, all the things that we want from a pro computer. So asking if they learn lesson from the trash can, I hope so, because the trash can was an interesting idea, but it didn't deliver the things that professionals wanted from a pro Mac, uh, you know, the the sturdiness, the reliability, the expandability, or even the flexibility. Yeah, the flexibility. They also never upgrade. Now, they they had an idea that oh well, the, with Thunderbolt you can do so, lots of external stuff, and uh, we, they have this idea about the two powerful GPUs and the one CPU. Um, like they had a vision of how the future professional computing could be, but it it was it didn't work out. It wasn't a vision that was, you know, desirable by enough people. And then Apple also never updated that computer again which is death sentence for a pro computer because if the user can't upgrade it and apple doesn't upgrade it you know the professionals always want the best and fastest because if you can shave some percentage of time off of their you know render time for their special effects or whatever time is money to these people they will buy your new computer to save them 10 percent or whatever or they will want to be able to upgrade it and they want them to be reliable and the trash cans have reliability problems with the gpus overheating so it was overall just a bad experience Everything they said in the April We Apologize for the Trash Can Mac Pro event led me to believe that they have learned these lessons, but we won't know for sure until we see the product. I bet you're thinking about it, though, with your 10-year-old Mac Pro at the house. Oh, yeah. What I'm mostly thinking about is how dead reliable this Mac Pro has been, like my 2008 Mac Pro, and I fear, like, getting a fancy new setup where, like, everything that's on my desk goes away because, like, I'm staring at a... 23 inch apple cinema display which i believe it, i think it's older than 10 years old i think i might have got it with my maybe i got it i don't know it everything on this desk is old i guess i'll keep the keyboard and mouse right but 
my monitor goes, my computers goes, all the external hard drives that are attached to my computer, all the internal hard drives, four of them I have inside, all that goes away, replaced with an entirely new setup, and I'm just afraid it won't be as as sort of trouble-free and just trustworthy as my current setup, including podcasting. I've podcasted for many, many years on this and have never lost an audio recording, fingers crossed, um, and don't have any sort of glitches or anything like that. I'm going to have an all-new setup, and, you know, I'm going to get it because I'm going to be excited about it. Like, if I buy it, that means I'm, you know, I endorse the computer, but change is scary after 10 years. So I hope everything works out. Also, it's going to be the generation one, so you never know. And sometimes with something like that, it's better to wait like your work did for the second iteration just to make sure they iron out the bugs. But after waiting 10 years, that would be really hard to wait another year. I usually do wait for the second generation. I didn't, I didn't wait for the second generation on the Power Mac G5, and I paid that price because the, the first generation Power Mac G5 uh, dual CPUs had, at least mine did, and I think this was a problem a lot of them, had a power supply that chirped. Like that, that uh, changes in power draw would cause a some tiny components in the power supply to vibrate. It's called the bird feature. Yeah, you could hear this very high pitched chirping noise depending on what you did on the computer to cause stresses. And when you were doing nothing, there was sort of an idle chirp of like the CPU spinning up and down. So yeah, uh, that was a great computer though. Chirping, chirping power supply aside, <laughs> there are ways there are ways you could uh, mitigate that by like turning off power nap, turning off the nap feature on the CPU and stuff like that. But for the most part, yeah, I prefer to wait for the second generation. But I, you're right. I just can't. You know, Ten years. I can't. I can't wait any longer. Every everyone in my life will kill me if I say I'm going to wait for the second generation. It would be kind of fun to hear, hear you say that, though. <laughs> just. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm not going to. I don't know. Am I going to buy it on day one? I might say, okay. Well, let me just wait for the first round of reviews to come out. All right. Let me wait. Let me wait a couple of weeks to see if there's some catastrophic problem. And if there was some catastrophic problem, like the, the you know the first round of reviews come out and there's some fatal flaw. I would actually wait for the second generation because the whole point of waiting a, a couple of weeks or a month is to see if there's something terribly wrong with it, you know? Were you ever tempted by the iMac Pro? I was. If there was no Mac Pro announced, I would have bought the iMac Pro already um, because I, I do want a new computer and I really like my wife's 5K iMac. I think I would really like an iMac Pro. But given that it's super expensive and given that I expect a Mac Pro within the next year or so, it just, you know, I'm not going to buy a $5,000 computer in the next year, buy another one that's going to probably even be more expensive. A lot of our listeners write us asking where the, the cutoff point is between the iMac and the iMac Pro. You know, they're thinking about the more expensive one. They're not sure if they should get it. In your mind, what are the, the, the critical points you should be thinking about for somebody if they want to jump up to the iMac Pro? If you if you have any question about whether you need an iMac Pro, like there's certain class of people who know they want it. Like if you have some... Uh, some task that you do as part of your work that takes advantage of all the cores you have. Yeah, multi-core is important, yeah. Yeah, having like 10 core, like those people know. They know that like this thing will do my, you know, work rendering job or whatever three times as fast. That's not like, you know, 15% faster, three times as fast. So those people don't have a question. So if you have a question, it probably means you're not one of those people. So if you're one of those people who's like, I, well, I don't have anything that I do as part of my work that's going to be two or three times faster. I just, you know, I just want a new computer. And should I get the 5K iMac or this this iMac Pro? Because if you spec up a 5K iMac to like the max that you can spec it up, it starts to get into iMac Pro territory. And then you might be wondering. Uh, the next easy decision point is, do you want to play fancy modern 3D games? That is, I think, if you're, you know, if you're outside of that, you know, the multi-core pro market or whatever, 
the main reason you would you would spend all the money for an iMac Pro is because you can get a way faster GPU in it than you can get in a 5K iMac. No amount of money you can put into that 5K iMac is going to get you the gaming performance you get from an iMac Pro. It is a colossal waste of money to buy an iMac Pro to play games. You should just buy a gaming PC for like, you know, a fourth of the price and get better performance. But if you want a Mac that you can play games on, the iMac Pro is the best choice and it is substantially better for gaming than the 5K iMac. So... That's another small subset of people. People who want to play fancy 3D games on a Mac, but don't want to just buy a gaming PC for way, way less money. Yeah, those people should get an iMac Pro. Uh, And the final thing is people who want to have a black computer because it's really cool looking. And and who have $5,000 burning a hole in their pocket. (laughs) I, I I had a listener tell me essentially that, and I wrote back and said, you know, I've blown money on way dumber things than a computer in my life, so... Hey, we we all bought the black MacBooks, didn't we? Yeah, that was like a hundred and fifty dollar premium. But think think about cars. People buy cars all the time because of how they look, and they cost like thirty, forty, fifty grand. Like it happens all the time. I, there's no it, there's no shame in that. If you have the money and that's how you want to spend it, go for it. Uh, yeah. So, but yeah, seriously, the iMac Pro. It's like multi core. If you have something that that uses multi core, maybe you're not sure if you do. Like you can find that out. Ask somebody with an iMac Pro. Here's the thing I do every day. How long does it take on your iMac Pro? gpu stuff not just gaming but any kind of gpu stuff if you have a program that uses the gpu heavily the imac pro has awesome gpus uh but beyond that if you don't fall into any of those categories 5k imac is a better choice you got the same exact screen as the imac pro the front-facing camera is a little bit worse the speakers are worse but like the 5k imac is a great computer and you can get it for way less money than 5k and still get a great computer out of it yeah, okay this is the o- you're the only person i ever asked this question on this show uh last question um, it's been three years. Is there any game and I, pick any Apple platform? Is there any game that I should be aware of? Cause I don't buy games until you tell me to Apple platforms. Um, did you play firewatch when it came out? I was aware of it, but I haven't played it yet. That I think is the, it's not a Mac exclusive game. Um, um, is Edith Finch available for the Mac? Let me see. Um, well, you can look this up. So it's very difficult in this in this multi-platform world. Like they're they're pretty much they're very, very few Mac exclusive games. So mostly what you're asking, is there some popular game that came out recently that also happens to have a version that runs on the Mac? Uh e- even Firewatch, which was made uh, you know, in in cooperation with, partially funded by Panic, the makers of Transmit and many other fine Mac applications, they they helped make Firewatch. Uh but Firewatch is available for consoles and for PC and also for the Mac. So think of where the market is. Yeah. You have to. So if you're looking for, but if you're looking for some kind of Mac pedigree, Firewatch is what I would suggest. Um, if you're just looking for a game recommendation in general, uh, especially for, you know, that, that, that may be available on the Mac, what remains of Edith Finch uh, may be available on the Mac and Steam. Maybe even if it's not, you should play it on whatever platform it's available. If you can reboot your Mac into boot camp and play it on PC. Um, both of these games are like, I don't remember how long Firewatch is, but they're both like two hour, three hour ish games, probably less for Eth Finch, maybe more for Firewatch. Like, but they're not like you have to invest huge amounts of time. You can, you can play both games in one or two sittings. Well, that's exactly the kind of game I need because I can't get lost in one again. So those are my two recommendations, Firewatch and What Remains of Edith Finch. I'm still uh, both pleased and mad at you guys for getting me on Zelda. So it's a, That is not a two-hour game. Exactly. <laughs> I, I have like a two-year plan for that game. Uh, you're talking about Breath of the Wild, right? Yeah. 
yeah yeah that's again that, that that is a fantastic game and the best thing about the game is it waits for you you can you, right you're two or three year from the plan you can do that you can it's like it's like a vacation home inside your switch i i, I maybe spend about four hours a month in it and it's just great but that's as much time as i really have for games and it's it's great though i love it um all right well john syracuse thank you so much for coming back after uh, so long and uh, and thank you so much for your thoughts on you know where all this is heading i so respect your opinion and and i know you think about this stuff a lot uh so people can find john on the relay network over at reconcilable differences with merlin man's great show um and of course uh atp accidental tech podcast that is i believe is it accidental ted is it atp.fm is that there atp.fm you got it yeah all right and um uh, are you still doing hypocritical your um your blog it still exists and in theory were I to write something, that is where it would appear. I think I'm averaging about one post a year at this point. Uh, but the good thing you can find at Hypercritical, it's not .com, it's hypercritical.co, because I couldn't get to .com. <laughs> it's .co. Uh, if you go there and click on the About page and then click on the like Appearances thing, if you drill down through the About page, I list all, I list all the podcasts I'm currently doing and links to them so you can subscribe to them. I also list all the other podcasts I'm on. So, for instance, I'm going to put an entry for this episode after it's published. So if you want to keep track of what I'm doing, you can do that at my website. And I, and I love John's contributions on the Incomparable Network. Uh, great stuff, the popular culture stuff. Uh, I'm also a big Star Wars fan, so I always like to hear what you think about the new Star Wars stuff. And um, uh, thank you, everybody, uh, for listening in. If you're uh, going to come to Chicago, save the date for March 7th. Uh, thank you to our sponsors, 1Password, Squarespace, Fracture, and Omni Outliner. And John, you are on Twitter as well. That's your social network platform of choice, right? That's right. You can find me on Twitter. It's in the ATP theme song. There you go. It, what is your Twitter handle? It's just my last name, Syracuse. Okay. And uh, thanks again, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs> <laughs>